Populism often leads to fascist dictatorships. Are we on that course now? What is populism, anyway? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. Why is it that the Democratic Party has never taken populism seriously? In making the choice they did, they give a big gift to Republicans who eagerly picked it up and used it very successfully to win over very large demographics who feel, not incorrectly, that they have been left out. Is populism of its nature really right-wing? Or has there long also been significant, very active, left-leaning populism throughout American history? My question to the entrenched leadership of the DNC is, how can you be so short-sighted and so dumb? The use and manipulation of populism has yielded terrible monsters who turn out to serve narrow, moneyed interests that actually gave birth to the anger of populism. One thinks of Hitler, Mussolini, Lenin, George C. Wallace, Donald Trump, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and so many others. We forget at our peril the demagogues of yesteryear, the fascists, communists, and their ilk, who claimed unique, unique insight into the overlooked majority's interest, but ended up crushing many individuals. As we've seen far too often, it's only a matter of time before these fake populists turn violently on those who disagree with their agenda. There are some real populists who stay true to the left-leaning anti-elitist power idea, in history, one thinks immediately of Bernie Sanders, William Jennings Bryan, Senator Bob LaFollette of Wisconsin in the 19-teens and 20s, uh, Fred Harris, who ran for president as a populist in 1976, still a good man, still very active. Al Sharpton has a brand new book about it called Rise Up, Outsiders and Outcasts. Al Sharpton is anything but right-wing. So what is populism? What are its hopes and dangers? Our guest today is Dennis M. Patterson, who's working on a new book called Taking Populism Seriously, Elites, Experts, and Populist Skepticism. This is quite timely indeed. Dennis Patterson, th thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a pleasure to be with you. you. De Dennis you Patterson is a Board of Governors uh, Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School with expertise in commercial law, trade law, and legal philosophy. He's won some Senior Research Grants from the Fulbright Commission, Humboldt Stiftung, I don't know what that is, but I'll take his word for it, and the American Council of Learned Societies. He is the author of numerous books and articles in both commercial law and legal philosophy. Well, again, thanks for being with us. There are politicians, quite many actually, who pose as populists. I get the impression that, that by definition, populists are a movement which some candidates see as a movement they can pick up and use to benefit their electoral chances. So let's start the discussion with you telling us what populism is, its credo and its essence. Well, as uh, my colleague um, Jacob Russell and I uh, argue in um, uh, 
the book that we're writing, uh, we think that uh, the populism is at its core, uh, the rejection of uh, elites by the masses. It is, of course, uh, now a global phenomenon. Um, one interesting hallmark of populism, and I would uh, uh, emphasize that this is true of both left and right-leaning uh, populism is its apparent um, dismissal of expertise. Right. And this is one of this is one of the um, well, the aspects of it that I, we think is the most interesting, and particularly in light of uh, the discussion about the pandemic, uh, po- um, there's a great deal of uh, of attention to expertise. Now, uh, you may recall uh, Michael Gove. Uh, memorably quipping during the uh, the Brexit campaign, uh, people in this country have had enough of experts. And of course, what he was referring to there were the experts who were saying that Brexit was going to uh, leave the uh, the UK economically uh, much worse off. Uh, now, left populists uh, similarly denounce as establishment economics mm-hmm. and technocratic politics, right? Um, these uh, what they regard as technical issues that would be dealt with uh, by experts and left-wing populists reject that. So we ask the question, well, why? Why is this the case? And, you know, elites, and I'll be happy to uh, sure. explicate what we mean by that. Yeah, um, and, a lot, and a lot of scholars characteristically assume that the populist distaste for experts is somehow irrational that um, if uh, elite critics were being charitable at all, they would uh, they would say that the populists are just uh, ignorant, uneducated, and misled by the opportunistic politicians that you described uh, earlier. Uh, so populists are regarded as apathetic about the truth, and they're driven by emotional tribal uh, allegiances. We think this is all uh, wrong, and we think populism is best understood as a rational phenomenon, and that populist movements represent strategic responses to um, political contexts. And the populist critique of expertise is actually based on a defensible theory of of knowledge. It's uh, it's uh, at base it's a form of skepticism. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we think that we think that taking populism seriously means uh, not dismissing populists as irrational luddites, and also recognizing that within populism there is at least the germ of um, uh, of, of a theory of knowledge. So um, these are some of the features. Now, uh, just to just to finish up this this, this thumbnail sketch of of uh, populism, we think populism um, has three critical dimensions and they are cultural, cultural, economic, and political. And we think that to understand populism as a global phenomenon, you have to look at all three of these dimensions and they are uh, more pronounced in different places um, depending on context. But let me just describe them briefly. So, Uh, so cultural, cultural is is simply what um, uh, Joan Williams in her work uh, describes so well, which is essentially elites uh, 
telling um, the masses, the middle of America, we're not interested in your views of anything. Uh, we know how to govern. We're smarter than you are. And we reject your values of religion and guns and patriotism and nationalism. These are the people represented by uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, famous yeah. dismissal as, um, you know, as, as just uh, deplorables. Right. Second is economic. Economic, economic populism is uh, best manifested, in, in my view, by a guy that I think you seem to like, and that's Bernie Sanders. Yes, Bernie's all about us against, he's all about us against them, right? right. The robber barons, the robber barons of Wall Street are basically putting it to the, to the middle class. They're basically uh, just ripping them off. And what Sanders promised was essentially a redistribution of wealth in a variety of means, wealth taxes and the like, from uh, the, the top 0.1% to the middle class. Now, of course, Trump, about whom I'm sure uh, we'll speak uh, more about uh, yeah, we might. <laughs> last, last night's... Um, I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know that shit show is now uh, officially officially uh, approved word on CNN. Well, if it's on CNN, Bert, surely you and I can use it in our conversation. I suppose. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, I, and I would think that uh, that, that was actually um, an almost neutral description of what went on. But we can get to that yes. later. So, so the economic part, you know, is, is you know, Trump's argument, of, uh, and I'll say in advance, there's actually um, a fair amount of truth in this, is um, the top 0.1% shipped all the middle class jobs to the Far East. They have, um, they have uh, systematically carved out the economic prospects of the middle class, and they have failed to provide anything by way of a compensation or mitigation of that situation. And the people who've gotten rich and wealthy are coastal elites. All right. So, uh, and a, for a, a more complete treatment of, of this aspect of populism, you could take a look at uh, Barry Eichengreen's book, The Populist Temptation. Uh, it's all about the economics of populism. And finally, there's the political dimension. And I think this is, um, really well represented by the Brexit um, discussion. Mm. I, uh, I teach regularly in the UK. I taught in the UK for over a decade. I have lots of friends. And I ask people all the time when I'm there, so why did you vote for Brexit? What do you think about it? And there is, a, there is a, I think, a strong core of people in the UK who basically have the view that we don't want the European Court of Justice telling us what our law is. We don't want faceless bureaucrats in Brussels telling us what kind of toaster and light bulbs we can have. We basically want to control our own destiny. We're willing to take a short-term economic hit mm. to make that happen. Now, whether you think that's rational or irrational is, of course, subject to debate. <laughs> but the one thing that you can't do I think is just dismiss this, dismiss all these people as as Luddites because no. um, their views, their views are grounded in 
defensible conceptions of what it is to be a member of a polity. So um, anyway, that's uh, hopefully that sounds a bit long-winded by way of of an opening answer to your question, what's populism, but that's what, this is what we think. That certainly, and so much of what you can say, what you did say, I think is quite understandable. And, you know, the populist sentiment for Brexit, I certainly can understand. I can understand you know, uh, with Bernie Sanders, that who we want to be, we, the United States, the people of America, we want to govern ourselves. We want to govern ourselves, have a say in our own future. And of course we get angry when that is crushed. Uh, And of course, sometimes populism does get a tad out of hand. If you look at, I mean, the French Revolution, the people were starving, you know, supposedly... uh, uh, Marie Antoinette said, well, let them eat cake because they don't have bread. She didn't understand. And that got a little out of hand with the guillotines and the you know, reign of terror. There were uprisings in 1848 all across Europe. They, they were not really successful, but it was an across-the-board populist revolt for creation of republics. You know, People don't often think about that word, republic, of the people. Governments that serve the common people, and not just the aristocracy Hmm. it seems like there's it's kind of been around for a long time your thoughts well it has been around for a long time you're quite right about that in the examples that you give the french revolution of course we have uh history of populism in the united states huey long yes uh but look i'm and i'm a i'm a i'm a professionally trained philosopher um i'm i mean history's fine but I don't think you can. I don't think you can really just look at the history of populism and say, okay, if we want to understand populism, we really have to understand it as an historical phenomenon. I think that that's helpful. Mm. But I think that in the in the in today's um, in today's globalized world, mm-hmm. um, which you in today's globalized world, if you're going to understand a concept like populism that cuts across um, a variety of, um, of continents, cultures. Yes. Uh, I think you have to, I, and to say, you know, it's the same phenomenon. I mean, what, 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 uh, I mean, like every scholarly project, right? You go through, you go through um, arguments and you always seek to refine the argument with each iteration. So you st- I, we yes. started with, we start with the observation, okay, we want to talk about populism, okay? Now, the word is used to describe what's going on in uh, continental Europe, France, for example, right? Um, Marine Le Pen, uh, Brexit in the UK, Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil, and and, uh, what's going on in the United States. Do you think that this is all the same thing? Hmm. And, and and we think it is. We think it is. But that's why uh, we worked on this to come up with um, a multi-dimensional account of populism, which gives you the unity that you need mm. to discuss this concept across these different contexts. And so what's going on in the United States is uh, is is different than what's going on in the UK. Um, uh, you know, we're not we're not leaving uh, we're right. not leaving um, a uh, an international uh, interstate uh, organization. 
right? So we're going to have a we're not going to have the same kind of profile when it comes to something like like Brexit, which of course um, is is really UK specific. On the other hand, when you look at um, uh, immigration, for example, uh, I think the discussion in continental Europe, the UK, and the United States is almost the same. It's obviously very close when you look at what's going on in continental Europe and uh, and Great Britain. Uh, and it's and we can contrast that what goes on in the United States. I mean, one of the things that I I asked people. Um, uh, that I, that I, outside of academia, you know, why did you why did you both vote for Brexit? Immigration was um, a huge uh, part of the discussion. I mean, I distinctly remember I went to uh, I gave I gave a lecture uh, out in the Cotswolds at uh, oh, at a science fest at a science festival, and I was picked up at the airport by uh, a woman who works as a midwife and her husband is a, is a doctor. And she said, we both voted for Brexit. And I said, well, why did you do that? And she said, because uh, my kids uh, had to get bused to a school on the other side of town because all the immigrant kids filled up the slots in our local school. And when I take, my, and I take somebody to the uh, emergency room, I have to wait um, eight hours because it's filled with um, with immigrants, and um, now I have no reason to believe that what what she reports as her experiences um, is untrue. But um, I think that I think that if you if you want to understand what's going on in the UK, you have to investigate well to what extent is immigration uh, correctly represented by individual experiences and what you read in the news. Elite people, the kind of people that uh, you and I spend our time hanging around with, mm-hmm. all dismiss all dismiss populists and, and these populist sentiments as ignorant. These people don't know the facts. You know, the, the bus, the bus, the bus that was being driven around with uh, the sign on the side, the amount of money that um, would be saved every week if the UK pulled out of the EU, right? That these people are all just ignorant. And I just think this is, this is, it's a number of things. Number one, it's not true. Right. It's not true. It's not true. Right. It's like, it's like, do you, you know, do you, I want to ask, I say to some of my friends, you know, you need to get out more because you're not talking to regular people. I mean, there, yeah, there are doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, bus drivers, taxi drivers, store owners, they all have, um, they all have views that are not, that are not um, ignorant uh, and incoherent. And they're grounded in, in experience. Now, it's individual experience, of course. Mm-hmm. You can't generalize from one person's experience um, to public policy. On the other hand, um, the accumulation of this, um, this, these kinds of experiences impacts the discussion and I think needs to be taken into account. Yes. And again, the fundamental, the fundamental um, posture of elites is always, it always has two dimensions. Number one, we have the requisite expertise to decide these questions. And two, yeah. if, you don't, if you don't have that expertise, you're just not part of the conversation. 
And this attitude is conveyed across the board in, in many different contexts. And I think it's what it's, it has the opposite effect of what um, elites hope it does. I think it, I think it, uh, I think it fuels populism. Now, one thing I want to say before uh, sure. you, know, you comment on these things is, is Jacob and I are interested in not talking so much about populist politicians as we are um, populists in um, in a polity. In other words, people who would who if you if you said to them, your views constitute a perspective that one could denominate populist. That's what we're looking at. We're looking at what individual people think, you know, what citizens think mm -hmm. and where these ideas come from, you know, what generates them and what is the role of their beliefs uh, in a, um, a public discussion of, say, something like um, uh, what's the right policy response to the pandemic. Anyway. Yeah. Wow, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Dennis Patterson about the really the the philosophy of of uh, populism, and it cannot be dismissed. It's a huge, or Bernie would say, huge mistake to do that. It's gotten us in a heck of a lot of trouble before. He's working on a new book called Taking Populism Seriously. Dennis Patterson is Taking Patterson Seriously, uh, Populism Seriously, Elites, Experts, and Populist Skepticism. And I, I mean, Donald Trump won in 2016. There were a lot of different factors. Tell me what, what you think. I mean, elites, I think by definition, uh, people are people who live on the two coasts and they look down their noses at the people in the middle. They dismiss them. As you were right. saying, you know, the experts know you don't know you're that's, I mean, we're a democracy, at least in theory, a Republic, and you can't dismiss a whole bunch of people. I mean, Hillary Clinton came off as clearly entitled, tremendously elitist. She, in my opinion, lost that election far more and Trump won it. It was about dismissing uh, uh, populism, for sure. And, and, you know, when Obama said they cling to their guns in religion, it just, it's its so incredibly dumb. So, you know, we, we talk about the history of populism sometime, where it is. You know, history and philosophy are very important. You know, each is, is uh, necessary, but neither is sufficient to figure out what populism is. Um, it's interesting to me, and people say this all the time, you know, how can people who are most hurt by certain leaders continue to enthusiastically support them? They did that in 1848. The peasants were the strongest backers of the monarchs because it was familiar, I think, you know, a tough leader. It's it's not just understood self-interest. Uh, uh, so Trump hurts, I think, the people who are angry, justifiably angry, and I think Bernie Sanders tapped into that too, they adore him no matter what he does or says. That's, a, I think, about 35% of the electorate. And and is this, you know, people could, you could say, well, anybody that supports Trump now is a racist. I think that's true, but it doesn't answer at all. It doesn't say, who is this space? Who is this space? And do you think, is there any way of tapping into this populist 
legitimate anger that they're being left out, that they're being looked down on. I think it's a huge mistake to do that. Your thoughts on that? Well, um, I want to I want to take issue with what I think you said, but um, perhaps you didn't, go right ahead uh, about the the typical the, you know the, the typical Trump voter. Um, I have to say that um, until I looked at the data, I had your view, which is basically the Trump voter is uh, is a is a usually. Um, an economically lower middle class white male without a university education. That's the right. that's the, the profile Fisher, that, sure. that people. Yeah, Santa Fe. Now it turns out that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking at um, uh, a research report from the uh, Democracy Fund Voter Study Group entitled "The Five Types of Trump Voters: Who They Are." Uh-huh. And what they and what they believe, yeah. Jacob, uh, who's um, an absolute whiz on um, social science data research, uh-huh. dug this up. So here are the key. I'm sorry, an expert. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Well, how, yeah. So, so here are the key findings. Right. There are five. There are five unique clusters of Trump voters: American preservationists, twenty percent. Staunch conservatives, 31 percent, anti-elites, 19 percent, mm. free marketeers, 25 percent, and the disengaged, only 5 percent. So the, the bullet point is, yeah, exactly. The bullet point is there's no such thing as one kind of Trump voter who voted for him for one single reason. And, of course, that's the conventional wisdom. And it's just not true. Now, in 2016, um, many people voted with enthusiasm for Trump. Yes. Uh, but others held their noses and voted against Hillary Clinton. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Trump voters, as it turns out, hold very different views on a wide variety of issues, including immigration, race, American identity, moral traditionalism, trade and economics. Uh, four issues distinguish Trump voters from non-Trump voters: attitudes toward Hillary Clinton, yeah. evaluations of the economy, views about illegal immigration, and mm-hmm. views about uh, Muslim immigration. So, um, and I think I, I think that that the people who are running Trump's campaign, they all know this. I'll give you uh, I'll give you an anic- an anecdote. I have a friend lives in in Philadelphia, and he recently changed his um, electoral registration from Democrat to independent. Mm-hmm. He received he received a solicitation from the Trump campaign. That means that the people who are doing the the big data stuff for Trump are they're basically looking for people. Uh, um, one of one of the, the groups they're looking at are people who might be disaffected by um, the current uh, offering of the Democratic Party, and they're mm. looking to snag them uh, as Trump voters. And you, can, you compare something. I mean, one, one of the things that's amazing, right, is is that the is the coalition of Trump people. So you have the hardcore, very religious um, evangelical yeah. folks in the in the Midwest, right. But then you have every one of the things I, I do uh, uh, 
is uh, uh, trade stocks all the time, and I read a lot of stuff in the financial press. And all these guys, all these people who tra- not not all of them, but a lot of them, and all these guys, all these guys on Twitter who trade stocks, they're all Trump people. There's nothing that that guy could do that would get them to vote uh, for anyone other than Trump because they believe that Trump is good is good for the economy. All of the evidence to the contrary, uh, notwithstanding. So my point is just that there's a there's a the, there is no such thing as quote the Trump voter. And I was absolutely astonished to learn that you could divide them into five yeah. different analytical groups. And again, if for your readers, if they want to just Google this, it's the um, Democracy Fund Voter Study Group, the five types of Trump voters. Pull up the article and take a look at it. It's, it's really quite amazing. So, um, you know, there, there you have it. And of course, um, once you have your profile of the five different types, you can then do your big data search and figure out um, how you're going to um, how you're going to to target these people. And of course, um, you know, this was, this is what made, um, if you watch the, uh, the the Benedict Cumberpatch film about, uh, about Brexit, about Brexit, you know, you can, you can see that Dominic Cummings, uh, the firm that he hired did this uh, successfully. If you employ the right big data tools, you can actually sway um, the electorate. So, um, it's not going to solve the problem of um, improper uh, improper ballots. I'm thinking of yeah. you know the hundred thousand ballots in New York City that are properly improperly printed. Not going to solve that problem, but it is it is it is interesting though that you can have five different types of Trump voter. They are the the the, the yeah. profile can be sufficiently uh, definite that you can actually target them with you know, social media, direct mailing, whatever. And so um, it's just, uh, it's, it's all part of the, it's all part of the, um, of the, the story, uh, which I think uh, uh, goes into a better understanding of populism and it's, and why it's attractive to so many people. And it is attractive. And one can really, I think one can certainly understand it. That's why I was drawn to Bernie Sanders. What's why, I've always been impressed with what they used to call the prairie populists, like William Jennings Bryan fighting Bob LaFollette, a, a senator from Wisconsin, who were left-leaning populists. You got If you don't listen mm-hmm. to those people, I am amazed. I, I doubt that the Democratic Party, the DNC anyway, has uh, read that uh, description about the five unique clusters of Trump people. I don't know if, I mean, they may oh, be. Oh, I'm sure they have. Yeah, I hope so. Well, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> For experts, um, they don't seem to be very expert to me. Uh, I don't know how they miss it. And let's let's talk briefly about the debate of September 29th. I, I don't I don't know where populism fits in there, but he, uh, where, what are your thoughts with regard to that, uh, you know, as to how it plays into it? I mean, he seemed like, uh, Trump seemed like a, a two-year-old having a, a, a meltdown to me, but maybe somehow that clicked with populists. I don't know. Well, I think the hard question for you, Bert, in the light of that comment is, how do you explain the fact that 43% of America thought that Trump won the debate? They I did. mean, Oh, my. I didn't know that. Jesus. I mean, That's amazing just, to me. It's, 
amazing. <laughs> and, well, I'm not going out on a limb. I'll go out on a limb and, 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 and say this, and I speak only for myself. My, my colleague can speak for himself. I think Trump lost the election last night. In my opinion, it's over. It's over. And it's not because of any, anything that, uh, that Biden did. All Biden had to do was, was survive. But I think that yeah, what America right. saw last, I think what America saw last night horrified people who were on the fence. And I think, I, so. I think 40%, well, no, I, I, I'm just, look, you know, I, 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 I don't, I'm not thrilled with either one. I of understand. Them. But, 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 uh, but, I mean, I just watched this and thought, I don't know how anyone could look at Trump's conduct and say, this is the kind of person you want to give the nuclear codes to? Wow. Like, you know, I mean, if you can disagree about trade policy, tax policy, um, immigration, whatever, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can disagree about all these things, but it becomes positively existential when the person who ha- who has his his uh, has the capacity to destroy the world can't even exercise a modicum of self control to allow another person, Chris Wallace or Joe Biden, to finish a sentence. Mm. And and I hope people uh, I care. Thought, I thought. Well, no, no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to look at this from the point of view of what's your best move here, dude. <laughs> you know, that, that, what, what's gonna, what's, what's gonna? I love that Joe Biden said, "Here's the deal." I think he said it six times. Oh my God! But no. you know, here's the, here's the, here, the, the, my reaction to it was, this is not helping you. I even said on Twitter, 20 minutes into it, this is not helping DJT. He's he's not he's not doing well. And and I and I think that the, the, the difference somebody distilled it perfectly today. You're not running for president. You're running as president. And what people saw, I thought, um, yeah. horrified. Now, a lot of people say a lot of people will dismiss my comment and say, oh, that's just that, you know, that's just academic. Blah, right. Blah, blah. Right. Everybody, everybody who everybody who watched that debate already had their mind made up. I submit to you that is not true. I believe that is not true. And, um, you know, I was wavering about what I was going to do. I was never going to vote for Trump, but I was, you know, I, there's so much about Biden's tax policies, his, his ambivalence on China. There are a lot of things that I had trouble with. But after watching yeah. that, I just, oh, no, 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 this guy, this guy, is, we just cannot we cannot have another four years like this. And I'm actually um, amazed that we were able to get out of this uh, presidency relatively unscathed. <laughs> Although I do believe, I do believe that. I mean, we talk back to, back to substance. Trump is absolutely right. And I give him credit, which I would never give to Obama or either of the Bushes for taking it to China. The Chinese steal and cheat. Uh, they've done it for years. And Trump is the first president to stand up to the Chinese and say, enough is enough. The problem is, is that the tools that he is yeah. using to go against the Chinese are hurting the United States. Uh, 
and the number one example is tariffs. Trump, in his parade of lies, continues to say that the United States is collecting the tariffs from China. This is complete nonsense. It's collecting, it's collecting the tariffs from the people who buy the goods. For example, take French wine, something that many of your listeners to this podcast probably have consumed in the Seems last year likely. or two. They've yeah. ordered, they might have done something as exotic as ordering Bordeaux futures from Zaki's in New York. Who do you think pays the tariff <laughs> on French wine when of it's course. delivered? Of course. It's the guy or the gal that's getting the wine. They're the ones that pay it. The French aren't paying it. The French are getting they're, they're getting the on premier price and the and the consumer has to pay it. This is a uh, I just I simply don't understand the, the, the logic of Trump's logic on this. But a tariff is just a tax. That's it does all seem it is. It does seem that tr Trump is not at all averse to uh, what you and I might consider uh, racism, or in England they say racialism, uh, you know, when it comes to building the wall. Immigrants used to be, you know, welcome in this country when I was growing up. And, you know, they're darker sure. people. And the whole Chinese thing. I mean, I, I'm not crazy about Putin, I assure you. But he's, you know, and, and Russia is basically white like the majority of Americans. I, and he plays mm -hmm. on the racism. And I worry, you know, as we've talked about populism getting out of hand, uh, look at uh, France in the 1780s, uh, 90s, um, there's nationalism. There is nationalism. So often populism gets transformed. I wonder, I'm asking this as a question, does it get transformed into nationalism, which I define, and I, I think this is right, as we are better than everybody else. We, and there are people here who were big Trump supporters, the Proud Boys that he egged on in the uh, debate, uh, that hmm. they're the only legitimate one. It, they must rule over all others. They call themselves patriots. I think they're antithetical to what real American patriotism. But I wonder about the relationship between populism and nationalism. I really very much don't like nationalism. Being a student of World War I, that's a lot for me. Go ahead. Okay, well, two, let me, if, if I can, I'll make two comments on this. So the us versus them, who's the, who are the real, who are the real um, Americans, right? Now, this is the, uh, this, this is one way of understanding populism. This is, this is Jan Werner Müller's uh, way right. of, of distilling populism in his, in his important book, What is Populism? And uh, he thinks that, he thinks that, that um, separating the true from the false um, citizens of a polity is really the essence of populism. Now, I don't think that's I don't think that's true, because uh, if that were the case, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to describe Bernie Sanders as a populist. And I think I think that Sanders is a populist for the reasons that that you and I have discussed. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think that the elite non elite. Um, dichotomy yeah. is the best framework for understanding populism because um, if you took if you took uh, Mueller's approach, I don't think it would have it would be wouldn't be quite as capacious as the the three dimensions that Jacob and I um, articulate. Now, let me say something that you're not going to like, which is um, Joe Biden is a nationalist, 
and he's a nationalist on trade policy. You heard right? What he what he thinks is true. Yeah, yeah. Come on, you have to. You have. I you're do. Have yeah, to, okay. You're gonna have to admit it, right? Yes. Joe Biden. Joe Biden wants. Well, he wants America first. He wants to have jobs come back to the United States. He wants products manufactured in the United States. And he and this is his this is his trade policy. Now this is this, my friend, is is economic nationalism. Yeah. Right? It's called mercantilism and it doesn't work, right? Ricardo and Smith have already explained why it doesn't work, why comparative advantage is a much better explanation of how everybody's yeah, better true. off with trade than economic nationalism. And this is this is one of the reasons why I was uh, reluctant to uh, to vote for Biden because this is this is just this is just the same thing uh, that Trump's doing and it doesn't work and yeah. why doesn't it work why doesn't it work there there if your your readers are probably um, uh, as sophisticated as you are so they've no doubt read or heard about the books by Richard Baldwin uh, he's written uh -huh. two great books on globalization and globalization as um, as uh, Bill Clinton described, is an inexorable force. Meaning what? Yeah. Meaning that the global the global value chain is now distributed across the globe. Uh, large corporations have figured out how to produce their goods in ways that are as efficient as possible. They utilize, of course, the single greatest instrument of deflation in the history of the world, the internet. They locate their um, sure. they locate their different manufacturing parts of the chain in different places, and those are, are a function of labor costs, shipping costs, and taxation, right? Yeah, and the problem is, is that we are competing against the reason, the reason economic nationalism doesn't work is we are competing against the whole world, and everybody else is going to be uh, exploiting these efficiencies, and we're going to be bringing everything home all in the, all in the, uh, in the pursuit of a of a um, yeah, economic an economic sense. life yeah. for people that's better, and it's simply not going to work. Sounds uh, like because... Brexit a little bit, quite frankly. You know, it's I I don't know yeah. how it's going to work, and you know globalism. Yeah, so, I don't. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so so my my point is just that is just that the the thing is that's so disappointing is you have you have two trade people in the um in in the administration one is a junkyard dog peter navarro and mm -hmm. the other is bob lighthizer who's a very smart guy lighthizer knows all of this but he has to push an ideological agenda and the um the difficulty that, that i have is trump is so right about the chinese but he's so bad at formulating trade policies that could actually that could actually make the United States economically stronger. You know, we attract global firms to take, for example, BMW in Georgia, right? Yes. BMW for made in Georgia. We have Japanese cars made in the United States. Why is there no effort to look at how um, the global value chain works, understand it better, bring together yeah. um, the captains in, uh, of industry uh, you know, at a global, at a, at a national summit at the White House, to figure out how to take the uh, the 21st century global uh, manufacturing environment and make it better for the United States. There's no effort to do that at all. 
all Trump wants to do, I mean, this is all, this is his way of doing everything is you simply win by beating the other side (laughs) into submission. And sometimes that's the right strategy. That probably works well in a war, but it doesn't work well with trade. And you have, um, you have uh, countless examples of tariffs not working. One of my favorite examples is the Maine lobster industry. Mm. I used to, I started my career by clerking for the chief justice of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court. And I go back to Maine every once in a while. And I was in Maine last summer and I was talking to the lobster man in Portland and they all told me the same thing. The tariffs killed the lobster industry because the Chinese stopped buying. These were people who were making a decent living um, harvesting, fishing for lobster all yep. along the coast yep. of Maine, it's got, it's, it's done. And so, I mean, I had, I had a couple, I had a couple of lobsters, like God, they, they were huge and they were so inexpensive because uh, there's no, there's no export market now. Yeah. And so, you know, you just look at things like, and there are countless examples and that's helping uh, in different industries. That's helping Trump, for sure. It, it seems to be. And the fishing industry, there's a lot of it around here. We're coming at you from P- Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they've been against the experts in the Fishing Fisheries uh, Commission for a long, long time. Because they're hurting. They are. I mean, it's a very difficult right. situation. And as you talk about, globalism is happening. It's here. It cannot be stopped. But I wonder if it's early enough so that it can still be shaped. How can populists reconcile this economic reality, which is not going to be reversed or altered in any substantial way, what adjustments to globalization might cause populists to buy in and might, even without populists, it might just make it better for us? Because it's not going away. Sure, sure. No, it's not going away. But what, what has to happen is there has to be a commitment on the part of government to attracting global business to the United States. There are lots of things about um, about uh, labor and manufacturing in America that are attractive. And, and you, but you have to think about how to take those things and integrate them into the different um, manufacturing processes around the globe. I mean, we have the tech industry, right? We, is, is, the, is, the, uh, is surely um, the most well-developed and uh, productive aspect of the, of the American economy. We have um, shipped a lot of the, the manufacturing overseas. Yes. And, and, and for reasons that make, make economic sense, but there's been, but the, the way to, the way to, uh, to solve the problem of increasing jobs in the United States you know, at that, at that yeah. middle-class level is to rethink, the interface between um, the American labor context and global manufacturing. Now, I noticed that we have we don't have a lot of time left. I want to talk about, if I may, sure. uh, expertise, populism, and the uh, and the pandemic. Please, good one. Because uh, there's a all right, because this is this is one this is one area where um, I, I think you know populism uh, is is really important. So, as I mentioned at the beginning. Populists are often dismissed as uh, irrational Luddites. And, right. you know, the elites, and by the elites, I mean the media, the uh, university people, uh, think tanks, uh, and the like, uh, you know, the, the, this is what constitutes the core of elites. They, uh, they take the view that they have the expertise for 
um, the, the epidemiology of uh, the disease, and they are the only ones that can really set public policy, right? And the, the first point, the first point that um, that we try to make is, is that the question of what to do in response to the pandemic is not solely a scientific question. Science, of course, is extremely important, but it is far and away not the only element uh, in the in the discussion. Uh, the the phrase that you hear all the time from uh, from various people is, well. We follow the science. But, of course, the science doesn't tell you what to do. Right. The science can't tell you. The science can't tell you whether to open up uh, a school or not. Uh, doesn't tell you to what degree you can have, um, uh, you can have a restaurant or any other uh, business open. The science contributes to that. But what... what what is missing in this discussion is at least two things. Number one, within the scientific community, there is strong dissensus on some of the core issues involved in answering the question, do we understand this pandemic? And, it, and it's, it's uh, both at the epidemiological level and at the level of behavior. Does do masks work? There is there is substantial controversy about this. Uh, Biden has pulled back from his national mask mandate uh, position, mm. and uh, for example, uh, and but none of this is acknowledged by you know people who quote invoke the experts. Right. The second point, the second point is this: this is the real core of populism. I think that the I think that the the middle class, particularly the lower economic dimension of the middle class has been completely thrown under the bus by elites in the United States. Um, I think it's the case. I think it's the case that there is almost um, universal insensitivity to the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people across the United States who have lost their jobs. They're going to lose their homes and they're going to be thrown out of their apartments. They're killing themselves. College kids 40%, 40%, I think I read something to the effect that 40% of college kids last year contemplated suicide. Right, right. You've got, you got the opiate crisis is, 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 is ramping back up. Depression, Ugh. divorce, right? These yeah, yeah. are real problems, right? And what do you hear from the experts? Nothing, nothing. Um, we, mm. should have, we should have, a, we should have a, a $5 tax on every Zoom call that could be then distributed to the restaurant uh, people and the automobile repair and the barbers and all of the, all of the people who do these uh, essential yeah. but basically low-paying services, sure. all of whom, all of whom are getting nothing out of this. And then there's okay. people like me. I haven't suffered at all. I'm like I'm just like all my pal. Right? I just I just sit here all day, teach classes on Zoom, and. Uh, and, you know, and, and do my and do my research. This hasn't affected me at all. And so the expert class evinces absolutely no empathy for what's going on in in the in the lives of of lots of ordinary folks. And you know what? Ordinary people resent it. Yes. And resentment, resentment, resentment is a core feature of populism. If you read a book. Um, 
read a book like uh, The Light That Failed by Even Krastev and Stephen Holmes. It's all about um, populism in Eastern Europe, particularly Poland and Hungary. What those people resent is the West telling them this is the way you're right. going to live, and they live poorly, right? And they and they they resent they resent um, the attitude that says we have the only way of life that is worth living, uh-huh. and your job is to your job is to embrace liberalism and conform. <sighs> now, going back to going back to the United going back to the United States, the I, I think that one of the core features of the, of the strength of populism in, in, in this moment uh, with respect to the pandemic is the, is the fact that elites do, there are three dimensions to it. Number one, elites think we have the scientific knowledge, you don't, therefore shut up and go away. <laughs> second, <laughs> second yeah, uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't care less. They couldn't care less about the impact of this uh, on the lives of, of, of ordinary people. If they did, if they did, you would have a much more textured discussion about something like opening a school. I haven't, all I hear about uh, the, the opening a school is it's completely binary. Yes, yes or no. Right. And, and the, the only quote textured discussion is, well, we're going to have staggered classes. You'll come in on Monday and Wednesday, but the rest of the time you'll be remote. Right. I haven't I haven't seen anybody look at look at the the, the yeah, spell right. out, basically spell out the implications of the fact that, you know, kids, kids don't get don't don't seem right. to get as as ill from this as adults. Right. Um, they might carry it. We're not sure. What are the behavioral practices you can have in um, in schools that will mitigate it? The, I don't get the sense of urgency on the part of anybody who's in, you know, my, my crowd, you know, academics, right. policy people, they're not, they're not like, they don't have the, they don't have the view, you know, I, so, so you're, you're a professor in your home and you gotta, you gotta teach the kids. It's a pain in the ass, but it's not that bad. Well, imagine, imagine being, you know, an out of work waitress married to uh, an out of work auto repair person. Uh, you have this tremendous economic stress, and then you layer on top of that two kids at home who right. have to be educated. I don't see anybody uh, talking about how we have to open up the schools for the for the uh, the fact that we have to alleviate so much of this um, anxiety, stress, and real economic pain. I just don't see it. And I think that this is one of the aspects of it that um, I think expertise. Yeah, which which elites wear, um, uh, you know, they, they wear it like a, like a, a set of clothes. Yeah, and it and they think that somehow um, with that with that um, they can basically wave their hands and say, "Well, the science dictates this or that." No, there are real hard choices. So number one, so three things, three things. Number one, just admit the fact that this is a complicated public policy yes. decision. It's not just dictated by science. Second, make a real effort to help, uh, quote, the little guy and gal, right. right? Help people, right? And, and, and third, try to do this in a way that um, will enable, uh, enable everyone to come through the pandemic intact. And I don't think, I don't think there's much effort on the part of, <laughs> of, of either the right or yes. the left to do this. Anyway, that, that's, that, 
That's well, my two cents on the pandemic in a week. And, and I think what we're talking about we're talking about here is what feeds populism and so much of what you're talking about there, you know, leaving people out, showing, demonstrating that the elites don't really care. They don't really listen. I'm amazed that Democrats, I mean, Bernie got it, but he was, you know, the DNC runs the thing. So, and Biden was not my first choice in the New Hampshire primary. I assure you of that, but I support him now, of course. There's really no choice. We have, I haven't had a chance to, it's been so interesting to re-identify you as we went along, as I normally do. Dennis M. Patterson, who's working on a new book, Taking Populism Seriously, Elites, Experts, and Populist Skepticism. If people are interested in following more of your uh, your knowledge, is there anything on that internet thing you can point them to? Uh, you can just you can search for me on Twitter. It's, uh, it's yeah. me on Twitter. Um, that works. You can look. Yeah, at vital the, interest. We have a. I a, hope that would be if, if to start. my hope would be, and hope kills. Let's face it. If Biden wins, I wonder if there are things he can do to convince people that feel so left out that their voices do matter. I don't see that happening right now, but. Hope springs eternal, somehow. Hope is not usually a strategy, but um, I think in this instance uh, there might be there might be there might be some um, guarded optimism. Thank yeah. you so much for being with us, Dennis Patterson. Pleasure. Yeah.